If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. British Summertime is finally here and we want you to make the most of it by getting to know more of the history you love with a subscription to BBC History magazine. Subscribe this summer and get six issues for just £24.99, saving 30% on the shop price. Plus, when you sign up, you will also receive a book of your choice from Russia, Revolution and Civil War, 1917-1921 to by Anthony Beaver, In Search of the Dark Ages by Michael Wood, signed edition, or In Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Cultural Icon by Helen Rappaport, signed edition. To take advantage of this offer and for more information, visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash summer reads 2022. Offer ends on the 5th of August 2022. Offer only available to UK residents. Please visit website for terms and conditions. <laughs> Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. While researching his new book on the Battle of Stalingrad, the author Ian McGregor came across the unpublished memoir of Fritz Rosker. Rosker was a German officer who'd played an important part in the clash. 
His writings add a vivid new layer of understanding to a battle that many believe was the key turning point of the Second World War. In the September issue of BBC History magazine, Ian relates Rosca's story, and for today's episode, he shared further insights with Rob Attar. The Battle of Stalingrad is a battle that's been written about extensively over the years, most famously probably by Anthony Beaver in the late 1990s. What have you been hoping to add to the story with your new book? Well, thank you for having me on the podcast to begin with. Really appreciate it. Yeah, with the, with this book, it, I've I've always been passionate about East European history anyway, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, I've published a lot of books on the Great Patriotic War uh, in the Second World War as a publisher myself. And I've, I've been lucky to travel to Russia uh, quite a few times, uh, first as a student in 1981, and then in the following years, once the wall had come down and the Cold War was over, I've been. But with this one, yeah, I mean, Anthony Beaver's book is fantastic and I loved it. Still read it, still pick it off the shelf. Some of his uh, information there is fantastic. And it's very much in the vein of what I like to publish and what I like to write as an author as well. Is It's all about the first person uh, oral history, uh, eyewitness accounts, etc. on both sides. And yes, I mean, the world really doesn't need another strategic book on Stalingrad. Uh, there's plenty out there that are fantastic. David Glantz is, is renowned world expert on that. And I've got his books too, and I'm a big fan. What I wanted to do was drill down and get very personal about the biggest battle in military history, as we all know it is, uh, over a million combatants uh, killed or, or wounded, a uh, com- huge city destroyed. But with this, what I wanted to talk about, again, was give a completely new and fresh angle to the reader who might be interested in this battle and put it very much in human terms and not go into the vast expanse of this army here, th- this army there, uh, grand sweeps of advances and everything else. Obviously, I do talk about that because I have to paint the picture of of this personal battle, but I just wanted to focus on the battle for the heart of the city. And what I did was I I, I really focused on two opposing elite divisions, uh, the 71st Infantry Division in the Wehrmacht and the 13th Guards Rifle Division in the Red Army in Chukov's 62nd Army that was defending the centre of the city. There were obviously other uh, divisions neighbouring them in the vicinity, and and there was obviously this this battle was a meat grinder, so units were thrown in left, right and centre. But fundamentally, I wanted to look at these two units that had both begun the very first weeks of the fighting and were still there right at the end when General uh, Paulus surrendered uh, his portion of the 6th Army at the end of January 43. So... To me, anyway, it's just a fresh perspective, especially with all the the new material and eyewitness testimonies I then researched to tell this story. Yes, I was going to actually come on to ask you about that. So, you know, if you're writing a book about the whole battle, you've got a huge number of potential soldiers' testimonies to to choose from. I mean, how easy was it to find enough source material to write about a very specific aspect of the battle? I'm going to say it was surprisingly easy on the Russian side, but that's only because uh, I was lucky enough to be invited by the director of the uh, Panorama Museum in Volgograd, which is their their iconic museum that celebrates the battle, or commemorates the battle, I should say, and it's right on the Volga. And I was invited there uh, during lockdown in the UK. Uh, I got a special visa, and I was in their archives for a week during the winter of 2019. And... 
if I'm honest, I couldn't believe the the, the quality and the amount of material uh, I, I discovered. I, I'd obviously been in correspondence with them for quite a few weeks and months, and I told them the kind of angle I was taking uh, and what I wanted to talk about. And they were saying, well, this is great. We've had veterans of the battle donating their memories since the 1950s, since basically uh, the death of Stalin, uh, once Khrushchev, Nikita Khrushchev had taken over uh, control or governorship of Russia. Uh, there was a slight liberalisation over the next couple of years. And in that window, that's when more circulars started to go out to veterans associations in Russia to say, if you fought in Stalingrad, uh, we'll supply you with the material to write down in longhand what your experiences were, and then please send them back to the museum. So fundamentally, what you've got in this archive, and I only touched upon it, I only saw two, three hundred testimonies. The majority of them are these green school books, like 48-page green-covered school books like we had at school lined. And the veterans were given these, and that's what they recorded their their memories on. And they could have been in any unit. They could have been the artillery, the infantry, obviously the Air Force, NKVD, medical units, etc., etc. And so there's a just a vast array, potentially, of eyewitness accounts you could look at if you know what you're looking for. And all I asked the personnel at the museum was, can I look at the material of anyone who supplied you eyewitness testimonies that from the 13th Guards Rifle Division. And so when I arrived in the archives, uh, again, they, 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 they got me quite a chunk of material, but they said it's, it's a drop in the ocean, really. We've got a lot more. But I had over two to 300 of these books to look at. It was a big, big pile of them. And so myself and my translator who worked with me uh, or has worked with me throughout this project, we sat there and we went, spent the week going through what we had and it was a revelation. And then from the German perspective, again, it was, it was just doing the detective work. It was putting adverts in newspapers in Germany saying, did you or have you had a, a relative that, that served with the 71st uh, Infantry Division? Uh, they were from Lower Saxony, so I was concentrating around that area. I put some in national newspapers as well. And I probably got about 30 to 35 replies from families. And out of that, I could probably use about half a dozen uh, testimonies that were sufficient enough and had the relevant uh, backup of credentials that proved this was 100% accurate. So I used those. And then I was very super fortunate to get in touch with the the family of one of the main officers that was that saw a lot of the fighting with the 71st Infantry Division from the very first weeks in September survived all the way through and then was actually right there at the very end to uh help Paulus surrender what was left of the army at the end of January and that's uh, Major General Fritz Rosker uh and that's to me that, that, that that's the find of the book it's incredible it's just an incredible source of uh information so yeah, so actually Fritz Roscoe is, is the character you've written a piece for the magazine about, um, which will be coming out soon. And as you say, it's an in- incredible find. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how you got hold of of his documents. Well, like I said, I, I put adverts out to newspapers and various other people had, had replied. And it just so happened that, as, as a lot of historians do, you join various online groups, research groups, and you swap information and you're there to assist one another, etc. And on... One online East European studies group that I was on, uh, his youngest son, so this this officer ended up having uh, five children, and his youngest son, uh, who's a retired doctor, 
contacted me through this studies group and said, oh, I saw your advert in the newspaper and lo and behold, I've, I've, I've seen your name on this studies group. So I'm contacting you. And then what followed, to cut a long story short, we spent several weeks just discussing and him sending me scans of these uh, this material. And it's, it's uh, uh, an unpublished mini memoir of over 15,000 words, letters that this officer sent home, uh during the fighting uh while he still could uh a diary that he kept during the fighting and he was a he was a trained structural engineer slash architect in peacetime so he he'd he'd taken lots he'd, he'd drawn lots of sketches of uh the buildings he was staying in the surroundings that he was fighting in uh and then obviously photos and so he was giving me this in bits and, and bobs uh just sending through as we were talking and then in the end quite uh, incredibly and very uh, generously, he said, well, look, if you can organise a courier, I'm very happy to send everything over to you and you can assess it and see what you want to say in the book in the, for the story. Uh, let's do that. And that's what we did. When the package arrived, it was hairs on the back of your neck go up. It was just to flick through this kind of history and primary source material written at the time was just, it's just fantastic. And I wonder if you could briefly just explain what Ruska's Stalingrad story was, what what happened to him in the battle. He was in his early 50s during the time of Stalingrad, and he had uh, served in the Great War, been a frontline infantry commander in the last year and a half of the war, survived, obviously. Then he left the army, uh, retrained, as I just said. He he worked for an architectural practice in Germany. Actually emigrated to New York, and worked for a reputable architectural company in Manhattan on Madison Avenue. And he was there for two and a half years and basically came back to Germany beginning of the 30s and re-enlisted in 1934. And then as we progressed through to the war, he he served in France uh, during the, the Battle for France in 1940 and then was involved in Barbarossa in June 1941, and he served on the front line. He was a first a battalion commander, and then obviously as they're taking losses, he was then promoted and became a regimental commander, fought with Army Group South, fought around Kiev, and then he was taken out of the line, and he was put in the officer reserve, but he was then dropped. He was almost like a, he was a very, very able, very good frontline combat commander, very good at leading troops, uh, very inspirational, very brave, clearly. Uh, and he was used almost in a firefighting capacity. So wherever there was a loss of a regimental commander, he would be dropped in. And that's what he did right through the uh, the winter of 41 and, uh, and then was taken out of the line, probably from combat exhaustion, and ended up training, uh, going to tactical school in France. And weirdly, that's how he first encountered the division he would be fighting with in Stalingrad. He ended up training some of the officers. So when it came to Case Blue, uh, Operation Blue being launched, Hitler's summer offensive to, to capture the Caucasus, and they're fighting their way through towards the Volga, Sixth Army, that is, within Army Group B, and that's where the 71st Division was. By the time they're approaching Stalingrad in late August, like many other divisions, they're taking huge casualties. They've lost a lot of officers. And that's where Roska came back into the story. So he's at, I think he'd gone back to Berlin uh, and he's chatting to one of the personnel officers saying he would like to get back into frontline action. 
and they're just discussing where they can send him. And even though he'd actually said at the beginning of the conversation, which he recounts in his diary, that he didn't want to go to Stalingrad because he knew he just didn't want another winter of fighting again because it had been so tough the year before. Once it actually explained the situation and said how, how tough it was, was for the, the frontline units and the 71st Infantry Division was mentioned, he remembered the officers that he trained. He said, well, if I'm going to go back, I'll go with these guys because I've, I've trained them. I know their, their commander, who was uh, Major General uh, von Alexander von Hartmann. He knew him very well. He said, that, that's the one I'll go with. And the, so that's how he ended up uh, the first to second week of September on, a, on a, 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 an incline looking down because uh, Stalingrad, very long city of 35 to 40 kilometres, stretches along like a ribbon along the west side of the Volga. But it's, it's a series of hills uh, as you go down to the river. And he was, in, he was with his, his new unit that he was given. He was, an, uh, he was going to be a regimental commander. And so he was given 194. So there's three regiments within uh, the division, infantry regiments. And that's where we found him. So that's where his story begins. And that's where his, once he's, he, in his memoir, once he's given the preamble of this is how I ended up in the uh, the battle, which is only the first, it's like a prologue, the rest of his memoir and the bulk of his diaries just talks about the fighting. Now, um, I think people are probably quite aware that the Battle of Stalingrad is notorious for the brutality of the fighting. Does that come across from Roska's um, memoirs and also the other eyewitness accounts that you've read? Oh, yes. I mean, just to talk about Roska, for instance, uh, his memory and was, was crystal clear, considering that he would spend over nearly a dozen years in Russian prisoner of war camps after the battle and serve some really hard time in Siberia and the Urals and elsewhere. And so he came back. If you see the photos of him, he comes back to Germany, West Germany, back to his hometown of Dusseldorf. Quite a broken man. He's aged 20 years. But his memory of the fighting, I think, personally, having published many books on the subject is of, of, of combatants in World War II, it's quite exceptional. And, it, and it's supported by the division's uh, battle diary and, and everything else. And what he captures is the how good they were at following orders, his troops, how well they coped with uh, the losses and then having to amalgamate either companies or battalions into into bigger groups because their losses were so big and you just lose one battalion then you have to amalgamate that what's left of it into a, a new unit formation. That's what he was doing constantly. And, and just how tough the Soviet Red Army defenders were for the city or the section of the city, the central part that they were trying to capture. But also he, he reinforces the view that we read in many books that at the start of the battle... A lot of German troops on that front line really believed that if they got to the Volga, the war might well be over. This might well prove the death knell of the Red Army in the city, but also strategically in a bigger picture. In the south of the country, they would capture the southern Russia. They would capture the oil fields in the Caucasus. And it would be like one of the na- the final nails in, in the Red Army in Stalin's coffin. He, he, in his communiques to his troops during the battle at that very early point, clearly was was giving that message to his troops as they advanced. And like I said, he was a very able combat commander. And he, like a lot of frontline uh, junior German frontline commanders that were given more initiative to actually react to what they saw in front of them rather than wait for more 
strategic wider orders that the the Red Army was doing at the time. Uh, he saw an opportunity in early September while he's he's they're, they're just coming into the suburbs that this is my opportunity to take two battle groups and I'm going to pierce their defensive line right at the heart in in two very rapid advances uh, with assault guns and artillery support and obviously the superiority of the Luftwaffe above them just laying waste to the path in front of them. And they did get to the Volga. They got to the Volga very quickly. They were the first unit to get to the Volga. And he captures that brilliantly. But equally, what he does also capture is just how ferocious the fighting was in terms of not only house-to-house, hand-to-hand combat, uh, seeing your enemy's eyes up close as you fight, room for room, house-to-house, but also the accidents in warfare. And he recounts like some of the tragic blue-on-blue accidents where because the, the Luftwaffe are, are fighting uh, almost arm-in-arm arm with the advancing infantry, there are instances with Roska's troops where he loses one whole company that's just decimated by Stuka dive bombers as they're going for some of the targets in early September to get to the river. And he, he recounts that in very bloody fashion. And, and then he is literally a key eyewitness in a, in a senior role that survives the battles, but also then has to watch and listen and react in a confused manner as they realise they're now, the Russians have counter-attacked unexpectedly in November. They're now surrounded. Oh, no, wait, von Manstein's going to, to rescue us. Let's watch for that. And he, he instructs his troops. And then obviously it fails. And then what's he going to do? Then it's keeping morale of his troops up. The Kessel slowly shrinks and he's he's one of the the, the key members of the, the team in the centre of the city to reorganise and reorganise and reorganise as they're getting pushed back and back and back. So it's, uh, like I said, I've read a lot of books on this battle uh, and on the Great Patriotic War, and it is it is right up there with any combat commander who served on either side. So as the battle went on, obviously you get into the Russian winter, which had, had been terrible, you know, and really stymied the German advance the previous year. Does Ruska talk much about the weather conditions in his diaries? Yes, he does. He uh, he talks about when they first start feeling the effects of uh, changes coming, so the temperature's dropping constantly. I mean, the fighting obviously ebbed and flowed. But yeah, with Ruska, he really uh, he talks about in his diary of how once winter had set in, the first snows are falling and the Volga hasn't frozen over, but, it, you know, the ice flows are starting to come along the river and it's... The, the fog, the freezing fog, and the, they can't see the enemy on the eastern shoreline anymore, or on, on certain days anyway, because obviously they did have some bright, brilliant blue skies where visibility was good. But Os- uh, Roscoe recounts just taking walks on his own at midnight along the lines, because because his units, some of them were right on the river, but the bulk of them were, were holding houses along a frontier, or front line, I should say, of probably about four to six hundred metres, depending on where the line was, away from the Volga. And the Russians, the 13th Guards Rifle Division among them, were really clinging to that that bridgehead, that tiny bridgehead that they weren't going to give to the Germans. And they were just getting supplies ferried to them across the Volga constantly under immense artillery barrages and Stuka attacks, etc., etc. So Roska, as a as the commander of his unit, he is taking walks to see what he if he, if he can find what the enemy's up to. And just to, to, I suppose, really just to get take a break from it as well, because the fighting was incessant and he just wants to have a, a moment's peace. So he would he would go off on his own, at, like I said, at night, midnight, and just stare across the river 
and think, what are they up to? What are they doing? Uh, wondering what units uh, would be coming across, here firing in the distance. By the time of November, the fighting, well, early November, before the Russians counterattack, the bulk of the fighting really was up in the north of Stalingrad, where the fact the huge factory districts were. The south of Stalingrad and the centre of Stalingrad, where Roskill were, was starting to be a quiet area because they, they'd almost captured 90% of it by then. And Hitler famously, I think on early November, made his famous speech in Munich to, in the beer hall to celebrate their, their failed uh, push in the 1920s. To his old comrades, he was saying, we, we've pretty much captured Stalingrad. It's a done deal. We're just finishing off pockets of resistance. That's where Roska was. The fighting was really in the north. So he had time to do this. But like I said, he... he talks about the losses he sustained, the new officers coming in, how worried he was with the quality of the troops he still had, which must have been a worry throughout all the, the German units that were fighting in the city because they were, they'd lost a lot of their best men, they'd lost a lot of their best NCOs and junior officers. New units were coming in or, or reinforcements were coming in, but they were untrained for urban combat. Uh, he was having to rob Peter to pay Paul. So some of the, for instance, some of the kitchen staff, some uh, extra artillery uh, personnel from the division's artillery units were drafted in too, and they, they were used as inf infantry fighters just to make up the numbers. He just gives a very uh, accurate, I, I suppose, and poignant, uh, insightful look at what his situation was on the ground as the bigger events of the battle are swirling around him, really. And the, the title I think we're going to give your piece is The King of Stalingrad, which um, obviously came from came from the story that you tell. I wonder if you could explain to our listeners how that title came about. Well, like I was just saying earlier, it, it got to the point where it was the second week of September and the powerless Sixth Army is now about to go into Stalingrad. Uh, obviously, that's going to be a hard deal. Uh, in, the, in the last few weeks, the Luftwaffe had decimated the city with carpet bombing. And as the old adage goes, they turned it into perfect uh, ambush territory. So the, the Sixth Army is now going to go into a lunar landscape of uh, destroyed buildings, cellars, etc., where the enemy, the Red Army, can in invest their men and, and, and have perfect camouflage to then ambush or put up as good a fight as they can against the Germans coming in. As I said before, the Sixth Army, when they got to Stalingrad, had suffered heavy casualties, a lot of their frontline units were very weakened. Uh, their armour wasn't as strong as anywhere near as strong as it had been at the beginning of Operation Blue. There was fight, heavy fighting in the north that was draining away the the men and, and armour that Paulus ideally would have liked to have taken the heart of the city, but he had to keep shipping reinforcements up to the north where these huge Red Army counterattacks were coming in armour and men, because in some cases very suicidal, but they were they were drawing away German strength. So the, the men he had um, was one of Roska's divisions, and it was one of several units that were going in in early September, like I said. And he was just a man of action. And he'd gone and said, look, rather than go in in echelon in a broad wave where we're t we will take a lot of casualties from this well-dug-in enemy that we can't see at the moment because they're hiding in the rubble uh, and they're popping up everywhere... Uh, I plan to just take two battle groups, just go straight to the heart uh, of uh, the Volga, drive a wedge between the two armies, Soviet armies defending, the 62nd Army and the 64th Army, split them in two, get to the, the bank, 
invest the, the, the western side of the Volga and then we'll wait for uh, our armour to push up from the south of the city to encircle, classic German tactic, to encircle one section of what we've split in half and then we'll systematically destroy them, then we'll move on to the second one. And so that's that. That's the plan of action. Uh, his commander, Alexander, Alexander von Hartmann, was worried and was thinking, have you got enough men? And he said, well, I'll, I can do it. I know I can do it. So what I talk about in the book is, in, in this chapter is, uh, which is called I Am the King of Stalingrad, was it takes you through the battle of that day. And he did it in a single day's combat. Cut a long story short, they do get to the, the heart. They got plunged through the heart of the city capture or fight for large portions of the main buildings uh, that would then be the scene of, of constant toing and froing, attack and counterattack all through the winter. The railway station number one, the, the Univermag department store, which is where they would surrender eventually in the end of the battle, and other big stores and parks and monuments. Uh, they get to the river and uh, they've lost quite a lot of men. As I said, there was, there was a tragic blue-on-blue accident as well with the the Luftwaffe, and he's then getting his men to dig in and they're literally standing by the Volga looking out onto the east and and I've been there it's just, just such an amazing sight it's awe-inspiring you, you're standing across this vast vast river b- bigger than bigger than anything we've got uh in the UK and it's it's just this vastness of you know that's Asia as, as you're heading into and that, that's what he captures in his notes and he says quite triumphantly in his diary I am the king of Stalingrad because as they were, they were, they, they were euphoric. And even his, his commander, von Hartmann, and it goes all the way up to Paulus. Everyone that day, the end of that day, by the late afternoon, were in shock. Wow, we've reached the Volga because they, they just imagined it was going to be a very, very uh, bloody fight to capture the centre of the city because they, they'd already spent about a week trying to capture the south of the city. And that's the famous... Battles they had, grain elevator station, uh, which had cost hundreds and hundreds of troops. And there's only, you know, 60 to 70 Red Army soldiers actually holding them off. So what, what Roska and his men did was uh, unique and uh, a morale booster, I suppose, for 71st Division. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And if you look at the photo of him at the start of Barbarossa, as, as many of these men would have looked like as well, and, and on the Russian side. And then you see what he looked like when he, he, he's come home in 55. His hair's completely silver. He looks like he's aged 20 years. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. 
talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. As you mentioned earlier, within a couple of months, obviously there's this big Soviet counterattack that ultimately is going gonna, is gonna to win the battle for the Soviets. At what point does Ruska realize that the game is up? They, they obviously hear within uh, 24 hours of what's going on much further afield in the, on their southern and their northern flank because the, the, the Russian counterattack led by Zhukov is over one and a half million men, uh, hundreds of tanks, over a thousand uh, planes in this revitalised Soviet air force came as a huge hammer blow shock to the German high command and their Hungarian and Romanian and Italian allies. But this is across a, a frontier of over 400 kilometres, so stretching to the south and, like I said, the north of Stalingrad. What was going on in the city itself was uh, the 62nd Army and 64th Army, what was left of them, even though they were as ignorant as the Germans as to what was being planned on the flanks, because it was obviously all organised in secret, and the, the, the Red Army commanders in the city were only given a few hours' notice of what was going to happen. Their orders were to tie down the Germans in the city. So there was obviously sporadic and mass attacks all across the line in the city to just make sure the Germans weren't going to feed out any troops, reinforcements to what was going on on the flanks. So again, Rosca captures that, but it's one of confusion. They don't know what's going on there. They don't know the size of the forces that have now attacked them and what their strategic plan is, which is to drive deep into the uh, the Axis, primarily German uh, uh, rear, by at least 50 kilometres, and the northern and the southern Russian fronts to then circle round Stalingrad and meet at the transport and, and strategic key hub of Kalach, and that's where they meet vital bridgehead as well. So once that was captured, that then they are sealed in. That news drips back to the frontline troops and the senior command, and Roska's not part of the discussions at the more senior level of, well, should we break out to the West, which those conversations happened. Roska finds out what kind of uh, discussions they did have only much later once the Kessels reduced and by mid to late January, he finds himself in charge of of the central Kessel and he's housing and protecting Field Marshal Powell, would-be Field Marshal Powellus. And Powellus actually discusses with him at length, well, this is what happened uh, during the first offensive and what we needed to do. 
And obviously, as, as, as many people know, the, the commanders on the ground wanted to, to break out west. Uh, they were refused permission. Hitler then goes for uh, Goering, Hermann Goering's plan that the Luftwaffe, as they had done the previous year successfully, would supply the Sixth Army that was trapped in the Kessel with supplies, which wasn't going to work uh, because it was just a much bigger encirclement than the previous year that they had successfully helped. And like I said, it's a week by week account, or even in some cases day by day account, depending on if the fight, how fierce the fighting is. Where Roska is uh, talking about how uh, he has to let go some of his units within his own regiment that have to go off to the uh, the, the outskirts of the city to fight in the steppe, the rush, the freezing Russian steppe, to defend the the perimeter, which is constantly shrinking as the Russians are pouring in more troops to reduce the pocket until eventually, obviously, it's it's uh, it's very small and it's isolated within the city itself. But to begin with, the pocket was 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 really big. It was, I think it was 30 kilometres south to north and over 50 kilometres east to west. Uh, but that shrinks all the time. And like I said, Roska is giving up units and men, valuable officers, to go and man this perimeter as they're taking losses, uh, some of whom he never sees again. He then has to... Uh, organise his own defences. And his division was actually quite lucky because they, they'd they been fighting in the, uh, the the heart of the city pretty much for the whole battle for three or four months. And as most soldiers do, most units do, when they're fighting in an area that they're not really going to leave, soldiers scrounge all the time for material to make uh, bunkers that will be suitable to live in and survive in in freezing temperatures. They managed to make a bakery. They managed to even uh, set up an abattoir to kill the horses that they, they, they knew they were going to have to butcher to survive on. So they, they actually had some decent winter quarters that uh, they never really left the whole time the battle was going on. and that They just had to keep retreating back to the main section that was that would be around, the, in the end, the Univermag uh, department store. But that's what he captures all the way through. He talks about... This is the changes I'm going to have to make in terms of my defences. These are the men I'm losing. And this is how fierce the Russians are constantly attacking us. See, one thing that comes through is the core of his his story is the respect he has for the Russian fighter, how tenacious they are, how suicidally brave they are, and how he can't believe they survived the bombardments and the aerial assaults that the Germans gave them at at the start of the battle. And I'd be interested to hear a bit more about Roska's involvement in the final surrender, which I believe is more extensive than people originally realised. Most of the books, especially Anthony Beevil's book, give you a, a blow-by-blow account of it as well. I mean, the, the, the main facts really don't change, uh, as in terms of the personalities that were, that were involved on a senior level, uh, whether they're divisional commanders, corps commanders, or Paulus himself and his chief of staff, Schmidt. Uh, Roska met most of those men in January when obviously because the, the Kessel's shrinking, they're just seeing a lot more of each other because the, the Sixth Army's uh, high command end up leaving their main headquarters, which were at the time outside the city. But obviously as they're, they're retreating and they have to come into the city, Paulus's team takes over the, the, the divisional headquarters of Roska's division, which at the time is still commanded by his own commander, uh, Major General Alexander von Hartmann. So that's where they go. But Rosk is obviously an eyewitness to all of this. But what happens was, as you go through January, and again, they're taking lots of losses, the, the wounded are piling up in their thousands, uh, trying to survive in cellars or basements or sewers, lack of food, obviously, troops are emaciated, they're barely getting by, they're having to uh, 
uh, check how much ammunition they can use in a firefight, uh, how they respond. They don't have artillery duels with the Russians anymore. And all the time, the incessant pressure of the Russians squeezing the life out of this Kessel. So he captures that. But his own officer, his own commanding officer then, as we're coming to the end, uh, and everyone knows the end is coming, escape's impossible, or or, or a formalised, organised escape is impossible. Some troops take it into their, their own hands to try and escape themselves in small groups. Other larger formations take it into their own hands to just mass surrender, just walk across the line, and that's what they do. And Roska recounts this, and in, in lots of cases he, he talks about his disgust of how they've given up, and he's not going to uh, fail his men. That's a key point to him. He then talks about his own commander decides his way out is going to be an honourable Prussian officer's way out, and von Hartmann, with several other senior officers, goes to one of the front lines along the small perimeter that they've now got by the end of January. This is only days before the final surrender. And he's, he stands above the, the defences that his own men are lying in the snow. They won't get up because they know they're going to get shot at by Russian snipers. Von Hartmann, and like I said, some fellow officers stand up on the parapets of snow and start taking pot shots at the Russians. And that's the way they choose to go out. They, they get into a, a sporadic, uh, very speedy duel with uh, Russians on the other side, only a couple of hundred metres away. And that's how von Hartmann dies. He's, he's uh, taken out and killed instantly with a headshot. So command of the division, what's left of it, there's not many left, passes then to Roska. Because the perimeter is the responsibility of the 71st Division, he's now in charge of the Kessel. The central Kessel where Palace has come into, Roska is now in charge of. So that's the difference in the storyline. And what Roska's memoirs and diary give to the reader who's interested is just a completely different angle. He's not, he's not blowing away any truths that we know already, as in what, say, for instance, uh, key personalities like Powerless may have said to the Russians that were taking the surrender. But what he says is that, well, I was actually in charge. I was in charge of the, of the Kessel. I was in charge of the, the security of the Kessel. I spoke to Paulus every day. He records what Paulus says to him about his criticism of the way the war has been conducted, how he was never in favour of Operation Blue even taking place. Uh, he even questioned Barbarossa taking place because Paulus's initial job had been, he'd been one of the main war planners uh, for Barbarossa and he questioned its validity, but they'd gone ahead with it anyway. He'd done the same with Case Blow, but, but he'd been given the uh, the command of Sixth Army purely by accident because his own commander had dropped dead of a, a stroke. So he talks about this to Roska uh, and they, they, they have quite a, what's captured in the diary is two men actually forming quite a bond of friendship and intimacy in terms of revealing their fears to each other. So Roska talks about his own fears of has, has he been a good commander? Were there times where he took the easy option and didn't go and inspect the furthest redoubts that was defending the perimeter because he just couldn't take it anymore. He'd rather just go and sit in his office or his quarters in the cellar of the Univermag and just read reports and give out orders. And there's, there's, there's a couple of times that did happen and he rebukes himself for that. So he talks about that. But crucially, what he talks about is he says that he was one of the main people to initiate the first contact with the Russians that were surrounding them because they were surrounded by at least three motorised armies by now. There's T-3-4 tanks in the street pointing at the, the Univermag. I mean, they've got no chance. They know the end is nigh very quickly. 
And so he takes it upon himself to to be the the main spokesperson of what will be the German surrender. And what he talks about as well is that Schmidt, uh, the chief of staff for Paulus, who many people think acted duplicitously and also was one of the main players of of the, the surrender when the Russians were actually sitting across them from the table. Roska kind of debunks that and said, well, actually he had no part to it. And he actually passed on the responsibility of the surrender to me to the point where a couple of my officers who were witnessed to our conversations actually rebuked him when he left saying that that's just not fair. He's actually making you the fall guy here. He should be doing this. And, and, and Roscoe saying, well, I'll do it. I know I can do it. He talks about the Russians he met, the Russian commanders he met, how he went about it, uh, some of the conditions he asked for in terms of uh, what was going to happen to the wounded, how his men were going to be treated once they marched away, where he himself would be going, where they were going to take him. Would he see powerless again? Uh, would he see his own officers and men again? And and that's that's very poignant. I mean, obviously, I've said this to several people already that have interviewed me. I, I don't speak about him in the book as if I've got a lot of sympathy or I've got empathy for him because he's just a human being, but they shouldn't have been there in the first place. What they did was obviously put themselves in this position and the Red Army fought incredibly heroically to defeat them. And I I capture that in what I'm saying as well with with the testimonies I recount on the Russian side. But if you read his diary and you read his memoir, you can't help but feel sympathy for him because uh, he's just very honest in what he's saying. And there's no drip, drip, drip of kind of Nazi ideology or super uber Aryan race ideology coursing through his veins. He's just talking as a simple soldier. It very much reminded me of uh, Band of Brothers to a degree in style. Combat commander who cares for his men, whether they're on the the right side of history or not, he's just a, a combat commander. And as you sort of further to that point, um, clearly the the German army committed a huge number of atrocities on the on the Eastern Front to civilians, obviously as well as soldiers. Um, so, from what you're saying, is it fair to say that Roscoe wasn't really, as far as we know, involved in any of those? Well, that's hard to say because that's not recounted in what he says in his in his personal papers. I I can accurately say that all I do know is uh, he was tried as a war criminal by the the, the Russians. So obviously he went into captivity, uh, but he was tried as a war criminal. And so he did one of the longest stretches of time of any of the senior German officers. And he came back in one of the last batches of uh, Germans, of the the 5,000 that that would come back in the 1950s. He was in one of the last batches to come back. So he came back in the summer of 1955 to West Germany, to Dusseldorf. And he served, as I said at the beginning, nearly a dozen years. And he started off in Siberia. Uh, then he was in the Urals. He went all over the place. He was in he was in at least a dozen different places and it, as, as far down as the Caucasus. And he even went back to Stalingrad for a, a time. They probably used his, his skills as a structural engineer and architect to help with the rebuild. But uh, all I would say is, the 71st Infantry Division, as well as other divisions within the 6th Army, may not have committed mass atrocities or committed uh, atrocities within the framework of the Holocaust. But what they did do was uh, provide logistical assistance to those 
uh, SS and Einsatzgruppen uh, units that were committing these atrocities. These these units didn't actually uh, transport their victims uh, with their own truck. There were so many of them. They they used uh, uh, the transportation of the Wehrmacht, uh, and within that, they would have used 71st Infantry Divisions too. So I suppose that there, there, there is that as well. Uh, in terms of uh, Red Army uh, uh, casualties and war crimes, possibly. Uh, I was going to say there was no quarter given in this fight, def- definitely. Uh, both sides were as, as bad as each other, I think. Uh I mean, Chukov, who was the commander of the 62nd Army, he was obviously famous for shooting some of his own men, uh, which I, I talk about in the book. Uh, so I, I would think the jury's out. I, I wouldn't like to say one way or the other. I, I would possibly think he must he must have witnessed things, definitely witnessed things. Whether he had an actual physical hand in them or gave orders, that's just conjecture. I, I wouldn't be acting as a, a historian if I just make assumptions of what he's done. I can only go on what he says in his, his diaries and his his letters and, and his memoir. But but as you said, he doesn't come across as a fanatical Nazi from the things that you've read. No, because, uh, again, with his letters home, he's very disparaging of the the conduct of the war. And by conduct, what I mean is the actual, why did we invade Russia in the first place? And he's talking about to his wife... And and the, and this is uh, several officers that uh, whose whose pieces that I've I've read say the same thing. His commanding officer von Hartmann, I, I capture an eyewitness account of him at a wedding, before he goes back to uh, commence Case Blue in the summer of forty two, and obviously they go on to Stalingrad. He speaks at this wedding to one of uh, his officers that he'd served with before about how he just didn't think the war was winnable. They shouldn't have invaded Russia. Roskas of the same kind of cut from the same cloth. He's thinking strategically. This this whole thing made no sense. And what we're doing in forty two makes absolutely no sense. We shouldn't be here. But whether again, whether that means he believed in uh, Nazi ideology of an Aryan race, and whether he believed that they should expand expand eastwards for more, you know, Lebensraum. I don't know. In the family archive that they sent me, there's there's well over 100, 150 photographs of his time in the back line. Uh, and out of all those photographs, there's only one photograph of him at what looks like a uh, a governmental civilian meeting. And they, they're giving the Nazi salute. He's not, but they are. It looks like he's given some kind of report but he's not giving the Nazi salute, whereas the civilians in 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 the room are, and that's the only thing in the whole uh, family archive of his that I thought, okay, well, he's clearly at some kind of uh, party meeting here, uh, but he doesn't seem to be giving the salute for some reason. I'm not sure about that. Everything else is army. Everything else is Wehrmacht. He's with he's with his fellow officers. He's with his troops. Uh, he's with the wounded in Stalingrad. There's a lovely photo of him shaking hands with his right hand man, a guy called Hinden Lang. Uh, who was with him to the end as well. Uh, but apart from that, no. Just to sum up, what what do you think overall Roska's story and his memoir add to our understanding of the battle? I've read a lot of books, watched a lot of programmes, talked to a lot of historians. Uh, it's It excited me purely from the fact that it, it's a, a completely fresh eyewitness. So his, again, updating the end of his life, he, he came back in the summer of 55 
and I've got the photographs here as well, and we, we've got them in the book. And if you look at the photo of him at the start of Barbarossa, as, as many of these men would have been, looked like as well, and, and on the Russian side, and then you see what he looked like when he, he, he's come home in 55. His hair's completely silver. He looks like he's aged 20 years. He looks like an old man, basically, uh, and what he'd gone through. And uh, he killed himself on Christmas Day, 1956. And in that time, he got all his personal papers together, all the sketches that he'd drawn in the battle, wrote in longhand, which is what I got. He wrote in longhand his memoir and put all that together in a briefcase and then killed himself. And it's it's just been in the family archive in his study with his son since. And the snippets of it that have gone to a university archive in California at Stanford University. But this whole collection is only in this with the, with the family in this briefcase. So to get back to your question, yeah, I mean, I, it, it just offers a completely fresh insight. It's uh, he's a regimental commander and then he becomes divisional commander and then he becomes Kessel commander. And that is very unique just for this battle. Uh, which is arguably the most famous battle, uh, crucial battle, again, you could argue that point, uh, uh, of the Second World War. And he just gets you right inside it. He gets you from the street fighting to being on the Volga triumphantly to then realising they're putting up a bigger fight than we thought we would. We're losing countless men. I'm constantly trying to rob Peter to pay Paul to keep my units functioning. Now we're surrounded. Now we have to fight for survival. The Russian winter's coming, and lo and behold, my own commander kills himself, and I'm now in charge, and I'm I'm working with the supreme commander of the whole army, and I've got to, in effect, a surrender. I don't think there's any any personal account of that anywhere that I've read, anyway. I might be wrong. I'm happy to be proven wrong, uh, because it just means the story gets gets... Uh, embellished even more and we understand more about the battle itself but it's just uh, unique and I'm, I'm, I feel privileged to have read it. That was Ian McGregor. His book, The Lighthouse of Stalingrad, The Hidden Truth at the Centre of World War II's Greatest Battle, is out now, published by Constable. And as I mentioned earlier, you can read his piece in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer-Arden.